Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUD Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Is math and science education neutral, or do politics and inequities routinely guide practices? The teaching of math and science is critically important, but do common approaches disadvantage certain students? Today's podcast addresses these issues by discussing strategies used by one professor to encourage more equitable practices in math and science education. My guest for this episode is Dr. Courtney Kessler, who is director of the Ohio Center for Equity in Mathematics and Science in the Gladys W. and David H. Patton College of Education at Ohio University, where she also teaches in the Department of Teacher Education. Courtney received her PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Courtney, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you. So I was really um, excited to talk with you because um, telling a quick story about my math background, it took me three times to pass college algebra. I was never identified as somebody that had any math skill, and uh, most communication majors would actually say that they're in that camp. I went on, though, um, after my bachelor's degree and you know, learned about um, statistics and actually ended up teaching stats at the graduate level, which was, if you would have asked my high school and college math teachers, they would have never said that that was in uh, my future at all. Um, and it ended up being that. And I think that, you know, that's a, that's a personal story for me that shows that math is something that you can pick up on, um, both from a concept standpoint, but also seeing the relevance of it in your life. Mm-hmm. And it struck me as I was learning about your center and also reading some of the work that you do that my story is probably not atypical sure. and that, that my story is probably actually illustrative of some of the concepts that you work on in terms of trying to promote equity in the teaching of math and science. Maybe not the way that I experienced it um, necessarily specifically, but the idea of, of opening this up to students of all types, um, backgrounds, et cetera, seems to me to be something you're really passionate about. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, I'd like to start by having you talk about what the center is that you direct um, and sort of um, what you mean when you talk about the equity in math and science education and how your center tries to promote outreach to promote that. So kind of give us the story of what your center is all about. Sure. Um, First of all, I love talking about my position in the center in part because it combines and integrates some of the most um, exciting aspects of teaching and learning. Uh, First, um, I do a lot of work with prospective teachers in our early childhood program. So I teach future teachers how to teach math. Um, In our early childhood program, they're prepared to teach kids from birth to grade three. Um, So these are people who want typically to be elementary school teachers, but they're also prepared to work in early childhood centers. Another big part of my job is to work with practicing teachers. So sometimes this is um, in settings like typical kinds of professional development workshops where we're talking about content or pedagogy that's relevant to elementary school teachers. But more and more, this often takes place in classrooms alongside children. And so a big part of the mission of the center is to support pre-K to 12 student learning, which is also a big part of the mission of the Patton College of Education really thinking about centering uh, pre-K to 12 student learning in all that we do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as you're doing either the uh, training for the teacher, the, the student teachers that are in your program right now, mm-hmm. or doing the professional development workshops for people who are already credentialed and out in, out in, the, uh, out in the schools, 
what what are some of the concepts? I mean, you know, as I think about teaching math and science, I mean, there's a certain objectivity to what is being taught, but really you're trying to teach them about techniques that accentuate that ob- objectivity. Am I, am I right in reading it that way? Well, so one, um, one major approach that we're um, focusing on is really building on student thinking. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, it, um, I don't remember a lot of teachers building on student thinking. It was really about looking at what this uh, teacher was doing and maybe copying that down and um, trying to reproduce it. But we know now, and maybe we knew then, but we really know now that um, when teachers are really um, building on what students naturally do or intuitively do, kids are more likely to really deeply and um, conceptually understand the mathematical concepts that we're that we're wanting them to understand. Math is more um, about sense making and problem solving rather than simply following procedures. And so um, the biggest the biggest kind of focus that we're asking teachers um, to center on is really student thinking and mm-hmm. being child centered in their pedagogy. I remember um, when when I was you know my math memories of, of classes that I was in were problems. You know when I was going through the educational system were a huge component of what the teachers tried to get to. Mm-hmm. Now, that was difficult because in order to do the word problems, there was a certain amount of mathematical skill that the student had to have. And then on top of that, uh, sort of decrypt what the problem was in the word problem to be solved, right? And so you didn't always get the whole class to the word problem stage, but that was always the goal. And it sounds like what you're talking about is that it goes well beyond the word problems and actually tries to say, you experience math every day as a, as a student and trying to see, help the students understand that relationship between the real world and the concept. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, there's this huge body of work called Cognitively Guided Instruction, which shows that when kids enter school at five years old, they've had years of informal experiences that um, allow them to actually understand the concepts that we're trying to teach. So when they come in, they're actually able to um, solve story problems. So teachers should start math instruction by posing story problems that are set in familiar contexts without suggesting strategies for kids. And when they do that, kids can actually have strategies to solve those. Hmm. Now, that's sometimes hard for teachers to understand because of this story problem myth and the way traditional textbooks have always been set up. So I'm sure when you grew up or when I grew up, um, what I experienced was um, we'd have to do these exercises. And then if we got finished with the exercises, the story problems were at the end of yeah, the textbook Yeah, totally, lesson. yeah. And so that meant that sometimes we didn't get to them or only certain kids got to them. And so it perpetuated this myth that story problems were difficult or story problems should be done after the exercises were completed. And this goes against decades of research about what we know actually sets kids up to really deeply understand mathematics. And so um, what I've advocated for and what teachers are doing now in schools are posing story problems set in familiar context and not suggesting strategies so that first kids have an opportunity to actually do the intellectual work of math problem solving. Mm -hmm. So for too long, teachers have been doing the intellectual work of math problem solving, and then we have a nation of math phobics who feel not confident or incompetent or just not willing to do math because 
of the of these experiences. You know, it's interesting the way you describe that in such a holistic way. We've had several guests on the podcast that have, have basically talked about uh, knowledge acquisition processes and how people develop expertise in, in different content areas. And one of the themes throughout many of those guests has been that people who become really good at something are able to connect that thing that they're good at to a lot of other aspects of their lives. Mm-hmm. And and that's really, to me, what you're describing is, is, is exactly that, that if you try to teach students just to be really good at math, but it never gets connected to the other things that they're learning, then it remains sort of inert. Um, whereas if it's connected to those other things, it becomes sort of this vibrant thread that mm-hmm. really pulls across a lot of different um, areas of learning, uh, of life experience, et cetera. That's right. really interesting. Right. Um, I want to uh, move along. That was a really great explanation of sort of the philosophy um, that you've been working on with the center. Um, you started to hint at this a little bit, but you obviously, as, as a scholar and, and a practicing professional, have your own philosophies that you bring to the classroom. You've described some of that in the way that you just answered that question. But how, wh- what sort of is your philosophical stance as an educator and as a scholar in the field? And then how does that shape the way that you're guiding the mission of the center? Mm-hmm. Prior to my arrival, the center had um, originally been called the Southeast Ohio Center for Excellence in Mathematics and Science. And they had a long history um, of supporting the recruitment and retention of secondary STEM teachers. And so um, there was a solid history of connecting to schools in our region and creating this real network of secondary STEM teachers, which is um, a real problem of the supply of qualified STEM teachers in all of our nation, but specifically in regions like Appalachia, Ohio. Um, And so, but when I came, when I was offered the position, um, I made it clear that secondary STEM is really not my area of expertise or focus. And so um, there was this real opportunity for a shift in um, identity for the center. So I was bringing in two decades of um, experiences and um, interest and expertise in diversity, equity, and justice. And so um, we were able to change the name of the center to the Ohio Center for Equity in Math and Science. And it was a natural shift to really build on my strengths and interests. And luckily, um, there were there was a lot of um, there were a lot of projects going on in local schools, and they were ready to find somebody to collaborate on um, different kinds of projects to support um, this child-centered work, cognitively guided instruction, where they were really um, thinking about what children were bringing to the classroom and move, um, using it to continue to build and challenge students. Mm-hmm. So since you, since you brought up those terms, let's go ahead and turn to what you mean by cognitively guided mm-hmm. instruction and then another Another concept that I, I ran across in, in your website is, is the notion of number talks. Sure. Can you maybe unpack both of those? Sure. Because those seem to be fundamental not only to, your, to the philosophy that you have, but also the, the strategies that you talk about when you're doing outreach. Sure. So Cognitively Guided Instruction was a professional development program um, developed at the University of Wisconsin by researchers there and classroom teachers that they worked closely with. And it was really about learning about children's naturally developed strategies for addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And originally it was done with K-2 classroom kids and teachers. 
Um, but it's since developed into upper grades with early algebra and um, fractions. And the central thesis is that kids don't need to be told how to understand addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Um, and again, it's in, in CGI classrooms, in cognitively guided instruction classrooms, it's really about teachers posing problems, usually in story problem um, format, and not telling kids how to solve them, which again is sometimes really difficult for teachers, because one, because of the story problem myth that persists, but also because of this dominant kind of transmission mode of learning that sometimes um, takes place in schools. Um, luckily, a lot of teachers in this area are open to that kind of idea, and they're willing to give it a try. And when we pose division problems to little kids and they see the kinds of things that kids can do, it's, it's amazing. I'm, one of my most favorite experiences was in the Athens City Schools where um, we posed a task. I asked all the teachers in K-6 to to pose the same task. Um, they they posed the task, they collected data, and then we all brought the data back to hmm. look at what it looked like from K to 6. Now, some teachers changed the numbers in the task, but it was really amazing to see from kindergarten to sixth grade how one task could be used um, in slightly different ways, but how kids could do it without being told how. So what was that task? Uh, it was set up to, so the task was, there's some kids in an after-school program and they need to get in small groups to play math games. And the challenge was, or the, the task was to figure out how many groups there'd be. And so um, I went into several different classrooms to do it. So when I went into a first grade classroom, I started by saying, you know, I'm gonna pose a challenging task today. What are some things that you can do when you're faced with a math test that's really difficult? And so we made a chart that said things like, you could draw pictures, you could use math tools like blocks, or you could use your fingers, um, because fingers are really important math tools yeah. that are attached to our bodies. Yeah. Sometimes ki I see kids counting with their fingers underneath the desk. And that breaks my heart because I'm thinking, these are attached to your body. Like these are great math tools. Um, and so, so the kids were ready. And so I set, so I set up the story just like I did. Um, there's, th there's some kids in an after-school math club and they need to get in groups. And so I said, can you imagine what that looks like? And then I said, do you want to know how many kids are in the club? And they're so excited. And even though it's, you know, a made-up story, they're really engaged in the story. So then I said, okay, there's 12 kids in the after-school math club. And they need to get in groups of four. Can you figure it out? Can you? And so some kids were drawing pictures of um, 12 dots, and then they group them into groups of four. Um, some kids used what we call unifix cubes, which are linking cubes. Mm -hmm. um, some kids wanted to act it out. Um, in the upper grades, um, like in third grade, they used 36 divided by 4. In fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, they might have used 72 divided by 6. So again, we could see how even in first grade, their pictures might look similar to fourth and fifth grade. Or in fourth and fifth grade, they might be using more typical kinds of algorithms. But we could see how um, strategies progress. Mm -hmm. from. But kindergarten and first grade could still do what we call partitive division problems mm -hmm. or measurement division problems. Mm -hmm. Was there insight that you gleaned as you looked across um, the different cohorts inside those age groupings um, that was meaningful? Well, well, one insight right away is that we don't need to tell kids how to do mm -hmm. math, that they can develop strategies without being told how. Two is that um, strategies look similar even if um, numbers are mm -hmm. more difficult mm -hmm. in the upper grades. And um, that's an easy way for teachers to differentiate within a classroom because even in a 
say, third grade classroom, some kids might need to be challenged or some kids might need to be supported. So number choice um, is a way that teachers can differentiate fairly easily, but still have kids all working on the same concept. Differentiation sometimes is a difficult concept for teachers, and sometimes um, people have the wrong idea that it means like, oh, this kid needs to be working on addition or this kid needs to be working on subtraction. To me, that's a faulty notion of what differentiation means um, because those kids are working on separate concepts. To me, differentiation means having the same kind of expectation of concept, but supporting kids in different ways to work on that concept. Like so, so the number numbers choice. might be, yeah, so right. the numbers might become more mm-hmm. challenging, right. but the, the underlying core concept is mm-hmm. the mastery that you want them to achieve. Right. Yeah, that right. makes a lot of sense. So I, I know that um, originally we planned to talk about this a little bit later, but as you're talking about cognitively guided instruction classrooms where the teacher is sort of starting with these more um, conceptual but also um, real world, for lack of a better term, um, scenarios that guides the learning of the concept, um, how does that align to things like the common core requirements? So so the reason I'm asking this question is I, I perhaps mistakenly wonder if teachers are, are not naturally gravitating towards concepts like cognitively guided instruction approaches because they're thinking, oh, I've got the common core standards in the test and mm-hmm. that I have to first make sure I cover all those bases before I can even think about doing something that's cool like this. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to oversimplify or even demean the, the, the effort and the skill and the ability and the passions of the teachers out there. But I wonder if that's not a problem. I just want you to comment on this interface between CGI and, um, and, and the Common Core. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think teachers do definitely feel constrained by, by um, standards and especially the assessment of standards. I think Um, For the most part, standards documents have been helpful in a lot of ways, but assessment has been a real constraint and detriment to teaching um, in the way that they're um, implemented. Um, However, I think um, organizations like the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics um, have put out standards documents and now the more recent Common Core um, standards for mathematics have really promoted Um, a problem-solving approach to teaching mathematics. So if you look closely at the Common Core, it does promote this idea of children using strategies based on place value, based on um, making sense of the mathematics. So um, I believe teachers should be using cognitively Mm -hmm. um, guided instruction approaches to teaching mathematics. And I would assume, I mean, I, I haven't looked into the literature but I would assume that the literature is is very supportive of cognitively guided instruction approaches in math having learning outcomes that are very positive. Right, right, yes. It has um, several decades of research supporting mm-hmm. it. Um, there's been a lot of work um, showing that kids in cognitively guided instruction classrooms achieve um, in similar or better ways than kids in basic skills classrooms on basic skills kinds of um assessments and they score better on problem-solving kinds Mm -hmm. of assessments. So um, one more question on this, Mm because I'm finding this a really fascinating discussion, going into a lot more depth than the uh, initial discussion of our interview questions probably alluded to. Um, As I think about cognitively guided instruction, I mean, a real key to that is that the student is able to connect to 
sort of the problem that is presented, that mm-hmm. they can see that problem as, as being manifest of things that they experience in their own surroundings and their lives and that sort of thing. I think this starts to get into the cultural dimension that you're also really interested in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that a cognitively guided instruction approach in Athens, Ohio, might look very different than what you might find in Cleveland, Ohio, or San Francisco. Is mm-hmm. that is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. When it, I think when the researchers started out, um, they might not have necessarily considered a more um, cultural or critical perspective about it, but I think definitely now they have um, expanded their work and the um, students have who have studied under the mm-hmm. con- the original cognitively guided instruction researchers have really taken on that approach to think about how can we really pose tasks and uh, problems that really are relevant to students that really are motivating and engaging to them so that they really are um, seeing mathematics as a real um, mirror to their lives and connecting to what they mm-hmm. um, are thinking about in their everyday lives. Let's turn to number talks. What yes. are those? Okay, so number talks are purposely posed tasks um, to elicit specific strategies so that kids see specific number relationships, so um, to develop um, number sense. Um, and these are typically posed as naked numbers as opposed to um, story problem context. Mm. They can be posed in story problems, but typically I see these as naked numbers. Um, do you want to try one? Uh, maybe. <laughs> now, now, I told you that it took me three times to pass college algebra, and so there's still a bit of math phobia when you pose it like that, but go ahead. Right, right. Well, I am. I think that I'm a pretty thoughtful teacher, so I've, <laughs> I, I, um, and I'm, I'm pretty thoughtful about number choice. So, um, okay, so the task is 38 plus 38. So I want you to think about the sum of 38 plus 38. 76. Okay. Uh, So usually when I pose this task, um, there's usually four different kinds of ways of, um, four different kinds of strategies that Mm -hmm. are typically used. So one of them is, well, do you want to tell me your strategy? Yeah, so I was just envisioning as if I had written out the, you know, the 38 above 38 and Mm -hmm. then doing the addition. Okay. So I was actually envisioning that old-fashioned, you know, number, number, line below it with a plus sign and doing the addition like that, carrying the the one. Okay. Uh, So, and that's typically the way that people do it if they um, have a little bit of math anxiety or they're not very confident. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, though, in classrooms that where kids are very confident um, or... um, when when I do it in groups where people use math in their everyday lives, um, they typically do um, one of two strategies. One is they think about the 30s and the 8s. So they think 30 and 30 is 60, and 8 and 8 is 16, and then they combine those mm-hmm. to get 76. Um, another common strategy is what we call a compensation strategy, where they think of 40 and 40 is 80, and then they subtract off the four extras that they added. Mm-hmm. And then the third way is the way that you did it, which is um, sometimes problematic in primary grades because when um, you say 8 and 8 is 16 carry the 1, that 1 takes away the place value language that primary teachers spend so much time building up in young children. Mm -hmm. So um, if a young child says 8 and 8 is 16 carry the 10, 10 and 30 is 40 and 30 more is 70. I know that they have place value understanding. Mm-hmm. But if they say carry the one, one and three is six, 
and three more is seven, I know that something's missing Mm -hmm. or something may be missing. And so that traditional algorithm is sometimes problematic in um, elementary school classrooms. And then a fourth strategy is, I don't want to do it. Public math, public mental math is hard. Totally. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not lying at all when you said that. I'm like, <laughs> my first thought was, is that Adam's sitting back there laughing because you know this. I, I'm, I could get really busted right here, right, right. you know. And so there was that, you yeah. know. I, I mean, it, there was a bit of fear, right? Like, you know, I can't get this wrong, right? Well, and. I wasn't actually going to ask you to tell me your answer right away because there is a protocol during number yeah. talks where we have kids give a thumb. Give, we do silent signals where they give a thumbs up if they're ready to mm. share. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to tell you different ideas to um, kind of ease you into it. So yeah. I'm sorry that I put you on the spot. That's right. But we put you on the spot <laughs> having you come on. So it's only fair for right. the reciprocation. Right. So through these number talks, kids um, work mentally to think about. Um, so it develops their accuracy, their efficiency, and their flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and by sharing and defending their strategies, they have opportunities to collectively reason with other kids. And they learn to really think flexibly about numbers. And they get over this fear of how numbers work. work. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first arrived in Athens, um, I had heard about number talks, but I thought it was just one more gimmick. And, you know, I... Um, was I really believed in student thinking, but everybody just kept talking about this book. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll sit down and read it. And um, a fifth grade teacher at East Elementary was saying that she was just about to start, uh, or she, w- she had just started um, double-digit multiplication with her students. Mm-hmm. And I said, they're doing double-digit multiplication mentally? I, I was shocked that fifth graders could do that yeah. because I, I mean, I couldn't do it at the time. Yeah. And so, I mean, over four years, I've gotten a lot better, but I was just shocked at the power of these kids. And they're not using tricks to do double digit multiplication mentally. They are using real number relationships to multiply in their heads. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what they're able to do is so much more than what adults can do. And so I just think, man, when they're in middle school, when they're in high school, when they're in college, they're going to just be able to do so much more than we could ever do. And so I'm just so excited about this movement that's happening in our schools today. You know, it's interesting, um, as you were talking about that, one of my memories from sixth grade, um, Mr. Droney was my teacher, and he was, we split sixth grade where there was a humanities instructor for the morning mm-hmm. and, and then sort of the, the STEM instructor for the afternoon. Um, and he he was a really great teacher. And I, he did a lot of things in the classroom where you would do like contests at the board. And that public math phobia, mm-hmm. you know, was real, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of us that, that didn't feel confident. But I remember the one time that I shined in, in at least my my um, my primary grades and and then middle level grades was he did a contest one day where you know teams were created and we would go to the board and there would be a winner for each round and keep keep track of points and everything. So I get up there and you know this is sort of the equivalent of being picked last for kickball. You know nobody really wants me on the team because I'm not gonna. But his his problem was one to the power of four. And because we had just started learning or, you know, maybe refreshing on on powers. And I just remember that I just 
squatted because you had to be the first one on the floor. And I just drugged the, drugged the chalk down. And the other people up there, were they just kind of looked at me because there was just no, you know, I mean, there was no delay. And, and everyone's like, that can't be right. Scott couldn't have got that right. And, and it was a flash of insight that, you know, was very rare if, if it, in, in existence at all across my math experience. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, what you're saying is that you try to unlock that flash of insight so that people start carrying that around as part mm-hmm. of their toolkit, really. Right. And that's right. really interesting. When I teach stats, I do this a lot, like helping students understand what the correlation coefficient means. And rather than trying to do that numerically first, I always enter into it with, um, you know, with scatter plots and and lines of best fit, mm-hmm. um, because that's really easy to visualize. And what a what a slope for a correlation of 0.9, how that looks different than one of 0.4, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so I find that in, that when I teach statistics, that getting students to verbalize what things like correlation coefficients or my goodness standard regression you know those sorts of things that are sort of hard to you know you can get at it through a formula but that doesn't really teach you what it means Mm -hmm. right Right. and um and i find those discussions really fun Mm -hmm. um and and i think that when the light bulb goes on for people in those discussions, it's really powerful. Right, right. Well, and what's exciting about these number talks that are happening, and these are happening in Athens, in Alexander local schools, in, in um, Federal Hawking, mm-hmm. in um, Nelsonville, York, is that you'll see cl- kids say, oh, well, when I added 38 and 38, I got 66, and here's why. And they're not afraid of sharing their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And through that, kids are like, oh, yeah, that's a, that might be a common misconception. So next time, we'll be, we'll be on the lookout for this. And so it's really awesome that kids feel so safe in an environment to talk about their mistakes because they realize that mistakes are part of doing math. Mistakes are part of life, and it's a really nice um, – um, it sets up a really nice learning community when when um, kids are able to talk about mistakes and learn from their mistakes. Yeah, totally. I mean, trying to help students learn that failure is not always a bad thing right. is a really important. I mm-hmm. mean, that's it, true in STEM, mm-hmm. but also really in, in all aspects of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. Let's turn and talk more about the issue of equity now. Um, and I think I want to center that around the, the research article of yours that, sure. that I was able to read. You, you recently co-authored um, an article in Mathematics Teacher Educator, um, a journal, an academic journal. Um, and in that article, you sort of overviewed several of these issues related to I don't want to put words in your mouth so you can correct or, or add it, but, but the political dimensions of math and science education um, where this issue of equity came into play. Do you want to kind of overview what that article is all about? And then sure. there are some specific follow-ups that I want to talk about. Sure. We pose the question, should mathematics teacher education be politically neutral? And basically, we claim that it cannot be neutral, even if we wanted it to be. So um, in our roles as teachers and teacher educators, we're always making choices. And unfortunately, um, these choices benefit some and disadvantage others. And this is true in education and more broadly in society. And um, in schooling, and I guess more broadly, these tend to, um, these choices tend to marginalize certain groups of people, and those certain groups tend to be people of color, um, economically poor people, speakers of languages other than English, L- 
LGBTQ people. And so um, our piece asks fellow math teacher educators whether they're going to continue to allow dominant discourses that we hear in teacher education or out in schools about major issues in our field, such as um, traditional teacher-centered pedagogies versus child-centered pedagogies like CGI, or um, student sorting based on perceived ability, um, or whether they're going to make the choice to explicitly challenge and confront them in their courses. Mm -hmm. So let's focus in on ability grouping. Um, There's certainly a lot of other things that you mentioned in this article. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I would recommend to listeners of the podcast is if you've never thought about this overlay of politics and issues of equity, social justice in the field of of STEM generally and and math education specifically, this article traces those connections in in a really smart way. And so it's a good reason to, to go to the journal article and read it. I wanted to focus on a couple of those that stood out to me, one of which was ability grouping. Um, so I want you to talk about that. The context behind why I'm interested in it is that, you know, ability grouping is something that is a double-edged sword. And it, it is in, in the sense that when you label someone through that ability grouping, that is a label and that is a political mm-hmm. statement. Um, and as you suggest in the article with your co-author, that has implications for the student, um, both individually, but the students as a whole as well. The other side of that coin is that through that ability grouping process and that labeling process, that could heighten potentially the uh, recognition of the teacher that more attention needs to be paid with that student. Mm-hmm. And so so there's a double-edged sword, not saying that those two sides of the same sword are equal in importance, but there, there are different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about ability grouping and how that um, touches on this issue of equity in politics? Sure. So I think it can be really difficult or contentious to discuss this in part because it's um, sometimes easy or um, seemingly unproblematic to see individual students served well um, in a system that relies on ability grouping or tracking. Um, I know that as a student myself, I had a really excellent education um, and my high school had five different tracks, honors, um, scholarship, general A, general B, and the lowest one. And I never really thought about um, that system until I got out of school and started studying education. And then I thought, wow, the people in the lowest track had a much different high school mm-hmm. experience than I did. And you know, those people were set up much differently to engage in university courses than I was. And so um, it it was really eye-opening. And then especially in graduate school, it really um, made me reflect critically about my experiences versus other people and how I was set up um, differently. So so I can see how people can see how individuals can be um, served well in the system. But clearly, um, if we take a structural or systemic look, there are real implications of ability grouping specifically for certain groups of people that are already marginalized or underserved in our system of schooling. Um, So, for example, if we look at economically poor students or black or African-American students or Latinx students, we see that they're typically placed in low-track Classes. So when AP and honors classes are dominated by high SES students or white students and low track classes are 
mostly made up of poor students or minoritized students, this just reinforces this deficit framings of already marginalized students. When we can predict the SES of, or race of students, then this shows that tracking reproduces these inequities. When different groups of students are given different um, opportunities and different access to rigorous curriculum, this leads to what, what some scholars have called the opportunities gap. So if only certain kids have the opportunities to learn rigorous curriculum, this um, causes what some people have, now, have mislabeled for decades, the achievement gap, mm -hmm. right? And so when we call it an achievement gap, this frames it as the individual problem, right? Oh, these kids aren't achieving. And so to me, that's why it's really problematic um, um, to frame an, from a deficit perspective relating to race and class when it's really um, a systemic problem that, um, and we, ha we have models that, um, that show how detracking can be done in math and science mm -hmm. classrooms and done well where all students increase, increase in achievement and have access to rigorous curriculum. But it's hard and it's, it's contentious and uh, because we see how individuals might um, benefit from tracked classes. You know, it's interesting because as you're, as you're talking about that, it seems like this uh, in some ways very directly connects to a colleague of ours, Pete Mather, and, um, and, and some of the work that he does um, with um, appreciative inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like, you know, you're sort of making a compelling case that rather than viewing it from a def deficit perspective, that that more appreciative perspective would be mm -hmm. far more advantageous for all the students. Mm -hmm. So. Right, right. Yes, I think a lot of my work is really challenging teachers to see children and families from assets-based perspectives rather mm -hmm. than deficit perspectives. It's sometimes easy to slip in to deficit perspectives um, when teachers are so busy and so overwhelmed that it's easy to say, oh, this kid can't do this or this kid can't do that. But it's just not productive. It's, it's more productive to say this kid can do this and I'm going to do this to support and challenge and push this kid. Um, so that's what I'm always trying to think about how, how to um, support teachers and thinking about kids from assets-based perspectives. Yeah. If, if any of the listeners want to learn more about that perspective, uh, look at season one of the podcast, the uh, podcast with Pete Mather and Laura Harrison. Um, discuss this in a lot more detail, but I think it's a really interesting connection here. Um, as you think about the article, um, the article ends by talking about opportunities for uh, teachers of math, science, education-related uh, um, topics, but, but I think you could argue any other topic as well, mm -hmm. that there are ways that they can resist um, what you very eloquently describe as these overlays of, of of disadvantaging students in multiple ways, you know, um, because of some of these political dimensions of how we teach. What are some of the ways, you know, if you were giving advice to teachers that wanted to figure out ways to resist the inequities that are sort of built into the system, what are some of the strategies that you would recommend that they use? Um, I think first is that um, it's important that teachers acknowledge um, the inherent politicalness of teaching. I know that when I first started teaching, I didn't recognize teaching as a political act. Um, and I know that when I talk with prospective teachers, they um, challenge that idea. They um, talk about wanting to be neutral 
and wanting to be unbiased. And so I'm always pushing them to, to think about um, the idea that they'll never be neutral and that they have to acknowledge that there's going to be bias. And um, I think that we can strive to be fair as much as we can. But um, I think a first step is to acknowledge um, that our choices are political. And because we're always going to have power and status over students that um, we're always sending messages, whether implicit or explicit. Um, those messages have real power over students. Um, so I think the more that teachers um, can make math and science classrooms child-centered and really value um, student thinking, I think that's one way teachers can make uh, math and classrooms more equitable and just for students. Um, I think where when students are making sense and problem solving in classrooms, the more um, opportunities there are for students to succeed. When teachers are connecting to students' out-of-school lives, to their out-of-school interests, students are going to see math and science and any content as relevant and important and engaging. I think those are some things that teachers can do. Mm -hmm. well, I, I didn't. Uh prep you for this question, but would you give different advice to students? I mean, if a student was listening to the podcast and, you know, they've become intrigued by this, I mean, how can, how can students empower themselves to resist this? Well, I think one way that students have attempted to empower themselves is to say, when are we ever going to use this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which sometimes is met by Oh, you just need to learn it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one um, powerful way to think about education is through um, problem-posing pedagogies or problem-posing um, learning or problem-based learning. So thinking about just how can we continue to uh, be inquisitive? How can we continue to ask questions to think about learning? And how can we um, – so uh, one of my um, mentors who's really inspired uh, my work is – Rico Gutstein, he um, talks about different kinds of math knowledge. He talks about classical math knowledge, which is the kind of um, math knowledge kids gain and use in school. He talks about community math knowledge, the kinds of math knowledge that we use in um, our communities or in, in, in our homes. And then he talks about critical math knowledge, the kinds of math knowledge that we um, need and that we use to understand issues in our world, the, the kinds of math knowledge that we use to analyze and understand issues of justice and equity. And so to me, that's, that's what kids um, are, are that that's what kids want. That mm -hmm. that's what really is engaging and motivating to kids. So, what are kids worried about? What are kids concerned about? What do kids want to know more about? And to me, uh, that's how kids really learn math is when when they're really interested in something, are really interested in creating change. Mm -hmm. um, that's when they really want to know more. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the courses that I want to develop um, when I stop being a dean is is storytelling about numbers. And it just strikes me as you're mm -hmm. describing that, that this idea of helping people see the story behind the numbers in their lives is such mm -hmm. a fascinating concept. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it ranges from, you know, when we're adults, we worry about numbers like mortgage rates and, you know, really exciting things like that. But, but I think that we don't often think about numbers as telling a story. And, you know, as somebody that sort of backed into quantitative research um, as a graduate student and kind of you know, trying to stay as far away from it before that, I think that I entered the numbers world 
through stories, mm-hmm. you know, and the stories that they tell. And I think that that so connects with what you're saying about, you know, helping students be empowered by asking questions about, you know, the, the stories behind the numbers in their lives. I think right. that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, a few additional questions. So sure. y- you're, you're running your center and in, in doing your research in Appalachia, Ohio. I always like asking people the question of what, what's the connection to the place that you're in that mm-hmm. is sort of illuminating to what it is that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Well, even though um, Appalachia, Ohio is obviously very unique in a lot of ways, I feel like a lot of my experiences working with teachers, children, and families are similar to my experiences working in Tucson, Arizona, and Madison, Wisconsin, and Northern Virginia. I think in part because in those places, there's also quite a bit of diversity and different kinds of disparities. So obviously here in Athens County, there's um, economic diversity and disparity. And so I think here in Appalachia, Ohio, we have to be mindful of that disparity and not framing children or families um, from a deficit perspective, Mm -hmm. especially when their ways of being might be different than what's expected from maybe middle-class teachers. Mm -hmm. So um, like I remember this, so this is an experience from Northern Virginia, but I remember um, when I had, I was a math coach and so a teacher was saying, well, why aren't, why aren't parents helping with homework? Like, I don't understand why they're not helping with homework. And, and so I, I was having a math night and some parents were coming. And so I said to some parents, you know, some of the teachers are really frustrated with um, the lack of help with homework. Can, can we just talk about this? And so some parents were saying, well, I don't have time to help with homework because I'm working at night. And like, I had a night off work, so I'm coming here. And, th- you know, this is, this is a big... Um, this is a big ask that I'm coming here on my night off, and um, I just don't have the time. And so another parent said, and this this parent was not a typical Appalachian, Ohio parent. This was a parent who was brand new in the country from El Salvador, and she said, well, in my country, we don't help with homework because that takes away the respect of your role as a teacher. And so they had this cultural component of respect. And I thought, so we have all these um, notions of what good parents do um, to support kids at home for homework. And these, these, this idea didn't match up with these two different ideas of what the parents expected to be doing at home. And so I, so I think that we as teachers just need to be really mindful of what's going on in the home and not framing these parents and families from deficit perspectives, especially when they, they just have different ways of being and they're not any less valid or valuable, they're just different. And so I think when there are differences, we just need to make sure that we're not framing them. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I um, So I told you my story at the beginning of the podcast mm-hmm. about assuming that math was not a part of my future. How do you answer that when, you know, a student says, you know, look, I, I'm just not a math person, so this isn't for me? Right. Well, my first response is to say, you're not a math person yet. <laughs> so I think that there's a, um, there's a lot of power in this concept of yet. Um, I think that many people who position themselves as not math people just have not had good experiences yet. I think um, in the United States, um, it's, a, it's um, okay to, to be uncomfortable or to be not confident or feel incompetent. But in some cultures, 
um, when people are not successful, it really is um, thought of that they just haven't had the right experiences yet, or they just need more time um, playing around with the content. And so I wish that in our in U.S. culture, it it was thought of like that. Oh, you just need more time mm -hmm. or experience or different kinds of experiences because I know that that's what would make people successful if they had different kinds of experiences or they need a little bit more time. Because I see it with children. Some children just need more time than other children or they need different kinds of experiences. So um, I think also we just have so narrow of a view of what counts as mathematics. Like it's it goes way beyond knowing your math facts quickly mm -hmm. or knowing the right procedure for long division. It's It's about number and algebra and geometry. It's about reasoning. It's about communicating. It's about representing. It's about problem solving. It's, it's so much broader than computation. And so I think the more that we open up math classrooms to include those kinds of mathematical smartnesses, the more kinds of people that can be successful. And those kinds of math smartnesses aren't just wishful thinking. Those are the kinds of math smartnesses that real people use. It's the kinds of things that mathematicians use. It's the kinds of things that bakers use. It's the kinds of things that sewers use. It's the kinds of things that carpenters use. It's the kinds of things that we use at the grocery store. So I think the more that we use real mathematics in school mathematics, the more kinds of people will be successful. Courtney, thank you for such an engaging conversation. I really appreciate you being a guest. Thank you. So my guest today was Dr. Courtney Kessler, Director of the Ohio Center for Equity, Mathematics, and Science Education at Ohio University. A link to her center is provided in the text accompanying this podcast. I would strongly encourage you to take a look and to reach out to her if you have additional questions. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact the staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.